My heart is heavy this morning with what is happening in our country, and uh, although this sermon does not directly aim at what is happening, it is all of a piece. And so I offer it. When I was in second grade, I wanted to sing songs like that. I wanted to sing those kinds of songs. Songs of resolve. Songs of ache and resistance and sorrow and courage. My mother gave me a collection of albums. This is going to date me now, so just get ready, folks. My mother gave me a collection of albums from the folk song movement of the 1960s when the power of the old spirituals met the potent times of the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War protests. There were artists like Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and Ian and Sylvia on the record, but that was not who I wanted to emulate. No, sir. I wanted to sound like Odetta. Now, for those of you who don't know who Odetta is, that's a shame. Because Odetta is an incredible singer. Odetta is an African-American singer, guitarist, songwriter, activist, often called the voice of the civil rights movement. Rosa Parks called Odetta. She said Odetta, she was, uh, Rosa Parks said she was Odetta's number one fan. That's what I'm trying to say. But I didn't know any of that as an eight-year-old. I was far away from Selma in 1965 or the protests in Washington, D.C., but Odetta's voice, her spirit, her resolve was palpable even through my tiny little speakers of my blue and white record player that I could clasp shut and carry with me wherever I wanted to go. <laughs> and I wanted to play and sing like Odetta. So on Christmas Day of my eight-year-old life, my mom and dad gave me a baritone uke, which is a four-string little guitar for my little hands, so that I could play and sing like Odetta. Oh, let the midnight special shine a light on me. Yeah. Oh, let the midnight special shine a ever loving light on me. Now, I hope you're getting a good chuckle right now, <laughs> imagining a skinny little white eight-year-old in Colorado trying to sound like the voice of the civil rights movement. <laughs> and the midnight special is forever etched in McKinsey family lore. 
because I sang and played that song until everyone in my family was sick to death of it and going absolutely nuts. Ruth, please, dear God, can you sing another song? No. So for most of my working life, I've been a performing artist, a singer, a songwriter, a playwright. And ministry, in many ways, is the next iteration of my deepest calling as an artist. And one of the great moments in my performance life was appearing on NPR to promote some show I was doing and finding myself sitting across from Odetta, who was on the same bill. It brings tears to my eyes, I mean, really. I stammered, I blushed, I didn't know how to say all the things that she had meant to me in my young life, all the ways she had shaped me. And let's just say I was not articulate. <laughs> all I could get out was something like, uh, I have been listening to you and singing with you on your recordings most of my life. Thank you. Thank you. It is such an honor to be sitting across from you this morning. And with a deep sense of grace and recognition, Odetta said, Well, now, the circle is complete. My friends, I've been wrestling with something for years now. And I've been trying to figure it out. I've been trying to figure out if it's something I should preach about or something I should just keep to myself. If I should wait until I have a better handle on my questions or if the work of this church, the work of the spiritual life, the work of racial justice doesn't demand that I venture into the muck of not knowing and with compassion and transparency just see if there's some way that my questions and wrestlings can be helpful. And as you might have guessed, I'm going with the second option. <laughs> so I started out with that story of Odetta and me because I wanted you to know some of my context, that I have a history with spirituals and the blues that is tender and deep, and I have a history as a white person with appropriation and art forms and using art forms without knowing what I'm doing that is also tender and very deep. So here's my quandary as best as I can lay it out about what I know about creativity and what I know about appropriation. All of us are creators, all of us. Every last one of us is an artist, whether we know it or not. From the moment we take our first breath, we are making things up. We are creating things. We are putting things together in new ways. We are discovering. We are attracted and moved by things, by ideas, by sounds, by spirit, and we bring those things into our hearts, into our minds, 
into our hands and something new emerges. This is one of the basic tenets of what it is to be a human being. We are creators. We are cooking a well-loved recipe and we decide to add some different spices or my favorite option, more butter. <laughs> and a new dish emerges. We are in a meeting going over and over and over the same tangle of problems and someone says, why don't we come at it from a different angle? And a fresh approach emerges. We write in our journals and a new insight comes to mind. We hear a voice that rocks our eight-year-old world. And a new trajectory is set. And a new life of singing is created. All of us are creators. But what I hope you're hearing in my list of human creations is this. No one creates out of nothing. No one creates out of nothing, not even God. There was a big theological argument about that in the fourth century, and our people, they ended up on the side of everything comes from something. In the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was waste and wild, and darkness covered the face of the deep. God created out of the waste and the wild. There was something. Or the story of Sky Woman that I told a, a few months back, that is the creation story of the native peoples of the Great Lakes area. Sky Woman fell from above into the dark waters where fowl and fish and muskrats helped her cr to create the earth. Everything comes from something. As a young girl, I heard a sound, a voice, a presence that I fell in love with. It was from that early encounter that my own sound was created. I didn't know where these songs came from, only that this voice was important to me. Now, as a young adult, I began to sing in clubs, in coffee houses, so like 19 to 21 or so. And I started to put together the history of contemporary American music. It wasn't anything I was taught, per se. It's what I found out when I was out doing stuff. And any musician worth their salt will tell you that all forms of American contemporary music is rooted in the West African song traditions. Without the melodies of Senegal and the polyrhythms of the Congo, there are no work songs. There are no spirituals. Without the spirituals, there are no blues. Without the blues, there is no gospel. Without the blues, there is no ragtime. Without ragtime, there is no jazz. Without jazz, there is no rhythm and blues. Without rhythm and blues, there is no rockabilly. Without rockabilly, there's no rock and roll, no gospel, no hip-hop, no country western, no rap, no Beyonce, no Justin Timberlake, no Jay-Z, no Sondheim, no Hamilton.
Everything comes from something. But what happens when we don't give due deference and gratitude for how and what we sing? What happens when we don't acknowledge and stay deeply rooted in our true musical ancestry? When we cherry pick and loot? That's called appropriation, friends. And that's what happens all the time, especially in white supremacist culture that steals from other cultures and then claims it as its own. Michael Eric Dyson, who I read from before in Tears We Cannot Stop, says this. Appropriation is a tricky symptom of white racial grief that ironically defers to black culture even as it displaces it. White culture bows at the shrine of black culture in order to rob it of its riches. Real American history, and I'm going to say American music, real American history and music is the sticky web in which black and white are stuck together. America at its root has been in part made by blackness. God forbid, but it may in part be black. Slavery made America a slave to black history as much as white America invented us, he's speaking about black folk, as much as white America invented us, the nation can never be free of us now. America doesn't even exist without us. Take that in. How did I not know about the spirituals? How did I not know about the blues? Why wasn't that something that was part of my elementary school education in music? How did I not know about Senegal, the Congo? How did I not know? How did I not know the spirituals as sung by Odetta are the living, breathing testaments that we sing this very day that were created by black and brown-skinned people to restrict the assault on their humanity, to stay alive by spirit, craft, and cunning. How did I not know that the deep river of sorrow and struggle, hope and faith that spoke so profoundly to me as an eight-year-old transcends time and space and is, in, and is present in all the forms of pop music, all the forms of contemporary music that I sing and we sing today? I'm wrestling right now. I don't know how to navigate what I know to be true about the creative process and what I know to be the reality of appropriation, especially as a white person. A white person deeply immersed in a culture and cultural patterns of ignorance, denial, and appropriation. I'm a singer. What should I sing? We are a faithful people fed by raising our voices in song. But what should we sing? 
How do we sing? Should we sing? When driving down to General Assembly in June, I stopped to see the Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, Tennessee. It is the old Lorraine Motel that has been transformed into an incredible museum. And if you don't know it, the Lorraine Motel was where Martin Luther King Jr. stood on a balcony and was shot and killed. The museum does more than recount the last days of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. It starts from the beginning of the resistance during slavery, through the Civil War and Reconstruction, the rise of Jim Crow, and the seminal events of the late 20th century that inspired people around the world to stand up for equality. And woven throughout the museum is singing. Woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. Woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. That is what you hear as you watch footage of young black students ripped from the seats of a diner and beaten or having milkshakes or coffee thrown in their face. Or the artifact, a burnt out bus of this violent attack that on the Freedom Riders in Alabama in 1961. Or we shall you hear as you view the timeline of constitutional amendments that guaranteed rights to African Americans, followed by the sequence of laws and Supreme Court decisions that struck down those very gains and established separate but equal as the law of the land. What hit me is that so much of the tone and tenor of my singing is rooted in black suffering. Suffering that I have no right to claim. No. Or right to sing about, for that matter. Suffering that is and was caused by my people. How do I sing Guide My Feet or Ella's song as a white religious person of conscience? I left that museum thinking, I think I should stop singing for a while. I think I just need to be quiet for a while. Just stop. <laughs> it makes me cry just saying it. Holding that kind of sorrow, because 
singing as at my root system, friends. I went on to GA, just sitting with the questions of silence. Silence and singing and creativity and appropriation. And I am so glad that I happened into this workshop to hear Reverend Erica Hewitt, a white minister, and Dr. Glenn Thomas Rideout, a black musical director, talk about creating multicultural worship. And at one point, Dr. Rideout said something that gave me a new way of thinking about this. He said something like, you can't expect to sing any form, any form of American contemporary music well unless you have a relationship with the whole of that musical family. I'm going to say that again. You can't expect to sing any form of American contemporary music well unless you have a relationship with that musical family it came from. All the aunts and uncles, the grandparents and the great-grandparents. You can't sing pop without having a relationship with jazz. You can't sing rock and roll without having a relationship with the blues. You can't rap without a relationship with the cold language of the spirituals. You have to create relationships with these other musics, all of which inform American contemporary music. Real American history is a sticky web in which black and white are stuck together. Leaning into relationship is key. That's what I heard. Lean into relationship. Lean into the relationship, our relationship with history, with appropriation, with gratitude, with courage, with humility to lean into our ancestry, whatever it may be. Relationship is the key to most of what ails us, as far as I can tell. And a healthy relationship is one, is, oh, let me start this again. A healthy relationship is not one of taking without permission. A healthy relationship is not one of feeling used and disrespected. Relationship that is life-giving and whole and holy is one that is courageous and tender, that gives credit where credit is due, that revels in the gifts of the other, that tries to understand where the other is coming from, that tells the truth even when it's hard, that wells up in gratitude, that confesses, that repents, that changes, that is redeemed, that begins again in love. This is the kind of relationship I want for my singing, for our singing, our creating, our being together. 
part of the work of relationship and artistry that this congregation is undertaking will be served this fall with an artist in residency initiative and our growing relationship with the group Give Get Sistet. It is a six women a cappella group of African American singers who are phenomenal. And I've been in conversation with them and talking with them all last year about what are ways that a formal relationship can feed their artistry and feed First Universalist Church. An artist in residency is more than a group of perf group performing a certain number of times through the church year. This residency will include attending worship meetings in order to try out new liturgies or new patterns of singing and worship. We are talking about a community component of trying to figure out how we might leverage their talents, their teaching, their name recognition to welcome in more people from our community, our neighborhood, and find a greater connection to this place where we worship. This is a beginning. We will stumble. We will be very clumsy. We will make amends. We will begin again in love. We will try to build a relationship with music and worship that is life-giving and whole and holy. And we will sing. Oh, yes. We are going to sing. But we're going to sing in relationship. We're going to sing in relationship. And here's another thing I know about music, just while I'm at it. <laughs> and Carlos Santana said it best. Music rearranges your molecular stru structure. Music rearranges your molecular structure. I say singing transforms and makes possible a new way. That is my faith statement. Singing transforms and makes possible a new way. May it be so. Amen.